in Romans chapter 1. I encourage you to open your Bibles to that. We began our study of this tremendous book last Sunday, the book of Romans. And as I said last week as we introduced this book, we said that this is, in many's opinion, the greatest letter ever written. And I think that's true. It is the greatest letter ever written because it is a letter that magnifies and exalts the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is nothing more important, there is nothing more eternally significant than the gospel of Christ. It is this book that gives front and center to the good news of salvation in Jesus. It is the topic that we are most interested in because it is that issue that brings hope to hopeless sinners. It is the gospel that brings forgiveness, that grants new life, that awakens dead hearts, that gives a new constitution through Christ, that replaces our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And it's all of this that that comes to us as a a result of the gospel. And it is this reality that dominates Paul's mind as he pens the book of Romans. I would submit to you that as a church, it is what needs to dominate our minds as well. That we need to be a body of people, a group of people, a church that is first and foremost consumed with and enamored with and in awe of the gospel. And that's my hope and prayer for us as a church, that we as individuals would be so captivated and so in awe of the work of God to save us and redeem us that it just kind of oozes out of our pores. That we would be families who are are so committed to the gospel in our families that our children catch the glory of the gospel because so much more is caught than it's taught and that the kids that are raised here would know and love Christ simply because of what they see in their parents. That we as a church corporately would be radically gospel-saturated where the, the good news of the gospel never becomes something that lacks joy or freshness in our hearts. That we would be a body of people who who are enamored with and in awe of those terms like redemption and atonement and propitiation and justification and substitution, that these realities would not just be terms that we assign a definition to, but these would be terms that really grip our hearts as we see the different facets of the gospel displayed in this marvelous work. And then the result of that would be an increased evangelism and outreach on the, on the part of this body that we would be compelled into gospel service as we are those who love the gospel. And so it is this topic, it is this issue, it is this, this focus on Christ that we want to see dominate and control our church. Perhaps you're here this morning and It's possible that the gospel has simply become not just good news anymore, but it's just the news. It's just the facts. You're just familiar with the the, the old facts of the gospel, and it's just kind of lost some of its awe and some of its wonder. Maybe maybe you're here this morning and that's the case. Perhaps for some of you here this morning, the, the gospel is something that you view as something that you needed to get saved initially a number of years ago, but now you feel like you've kind of graduated from that or, or moved on from that, and it's no longer that important to you, that you've seen it more as something that you needed for your salvation, but not something you need today for your sanctification. If that's the case, I would argue for you 
to you that the gospel is not just something that was given to us so that we can embrace it and be converted by it, but it was also given to us as something that sanctifies us and grows us and matures us. And it is this topic that enables us to know and love Christ and experience all of His grace and all of His mercy on a daily basis. This is why we need the book of Romans. This is why this book is so significant, because it helps us continually be absorbed in the gospel, and that's what we want to be as a people and as a church. We said last week that this book was written by Paul, a man who himself was dominated by the gospel because he was one who had experienced it. We walked through his testimony last week and saw how God marvelously transformed this man's life, and he went from being a persecutor of Christ to a proclaimer of Christ. And why he could write with such passion and such conviction the book of Romans is because he was a man who was saturated with the gospel, having experienced it, having lived it, and having become a trophy of God's grace. We saw in verse 1 last week, Paul says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And as Paul writes this letter, he wants us to understand three things about him. First, number one, that he understood the fact that he was simply a bondservant of Christ. That when you boil his life down to everything at its most basic level, he's nothing more than a slave of Christ. That's something we need to understand as well. That we're just slaves of Christ who has freed us from sin. He also recognizes that he's called as an apostle, that he's been one who has been called by Christ and sent to preach this gospel. And that's what he says, the last part of verse 1, set apart for the gospel of God. Here was a man who understood the gospel because he experienced the gospel, and here was a man who loved the gospel, and as his pen hits the paper, he can't help but spill out gospel praise. Well, it's the last phrase in verse 1 that kind of sets Paul into the introduction of this book. Verse 1 at the end says he was set apart for the gospel of God. Then starting in verse 2 through verse 7, Paul begins to elaborate on this gospel. And what you have here in Romans 1 verses 2 through 7 is the gospel in miniature. You have a summation of all the crucial tenets of the gospel that Paul is going to describe for us in the next 16 chapters. But what he wants us to see right from the beginning are the important facets, those key parts of the gospel that he will begin to elaborate on after his introduction. And so what we have here in these opening verses is really a preview, a taste of what is to come. I took my kids a couple months ago to... A movie. We don't do that very often, but they had those free kid movies, and so we went as a family and watched this movie. You know when you go to a movie that there's always about 12 previews before you actually get to the feature. And so we're sitting there watching these previews, and my children see one particular preview that has kind of gripped their hearts. And all, ever since we've seen this movie, now they want to see the next one. They, they've seen the preview. They've, got, they've gotten a little taste of it, and their appetite has been wet because... They want to see this movie, and so we keep being bugged by our kids to see this other movie. They've gotten a glimpse. That's what this is. This is a preview. This is a glimpse. This is a little taste that will whet your appetite for what is about to come as Paul introduces us here to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which he will explain for us in the upcoming chapters. Look. 
as I read, follow along as I read Romans 1, verses 1 to 7. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, who was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for His name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ to all who are beloved in God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You will notice that those words form a very familiar introduction. This is the way Paul introduces most of his books. You can see his beginning in verse 1. He describes himself, Paul. He calls himself, verse 1, an apostle, which he does in most of the other books that he writes. And down in verse 7, he gives the typical greeting which he gives in almost all of the letters that he writes, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So many familiar features of this introduction, but there are many things that are different about it. This is the longest Pauline introduction to any book that he's written. Uh, Most of his introductions are between 30 and 40 words in the original. This one is 93 words. There's something Paul wants us to understand. This introduction is more theological and more personal than any of his other introductions. And the reason is because Paul is tremendously concerned that the Roman people receive what he has to say. He's never been to them. He's never visited them. In fact, the church in Rome was not planted by an apostle. Most likely, it was planted by people who were there at Pentecost, who heard the gospel and went back to Rome and started a church. But there's been no, no apostle there. Paul's not been there. So he wants them to understand, as he anticipates coming to visit them, he wants them to receive what he has to say. In these opening verses of Romans, we find out why he's so excited. Why he's so pumped up why he's so lit up about the gospel. And I would submit to you that you here this morning, we together need to be excited in the same way Paul was excited about the gospel. So starting today, I want to give you five reasons why the gospel is really good news. Five reasons that will come from these verses on why the gospel is really good news. And if you're here this morning and you're struggling to find your heart excited about these things, well, these are the reasons that your heart should be engaged in the gospel. These are the reasons you should be excited about this topic. And so we want to look at five reasons why the gospel is really good news. We're only going to get to a couple this morning. So let's look at the first one. The first reason is that it was anticipated in the Old Testament. This gospel that Paul has just briefly introduced us to is a gospel that was anticipated in the Old Testament. Look with me at verse 2. Paul says, which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. I love this. As Paul writes this book, he wants us to understand that this message of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, is not a new message. It's the same old message. It's not some new idea. It's not some recent invention of Paul or Christ. 
It's not some afterthought of God that had to come up with a new plan after his son was crucified. No, this is not a change in God's plan. The gospel is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Jordan and Lauren just sung about it this morning. The gospel was anticipated in the Old Testament. And Paul wants us to understand that it's the Old Testament that pointed to Christ and pointed to the gospel. It was prophesied and anticipated in the Old Testament and realized in the coming of Christ. And so when Paul says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, what he's doing is drawing our attention and our affections to the fact that this gospel, which he's preaching, has already been anticipated in the Scriptures of old. This is what he means by the word Holy Scriptures. Obviously, it can refer to all of the the Bible. But in this context, it is referring to the Old Testament. Because Paul is writing at a time when most of the New Testament has not yet been written. And so he is referring to the Old Testament. And it's the Old Testament that speaks of Christ. It's the Old Testament that looks ahead to Christ. Someone as well said that the Old Testament is a hall of mirrors reflecting Jesus. That's what it is. You can't turn a few pages of the Old Testament and not see Christ. He's there all over the place. And what I find amazing is that this is the scarlet thread that weaves itself all along the Scriptures. The Bible was written by 40 different authors over the course of 1,500 years through three different languages, and it's got one message. You can't get too many people in the room to agree on anything. Just, re- just listen and watch the presidential debates, which you probably saw this week. They don't agree on anything, and they're on the same team. Forty different authors. Over 1,500 years. Three different languages. One message. It speaks to the unity of the Scriptures. It speaks to the consistency and the united nature of Scripture that really, truly only has one author, right? God himself. And so Paul's concern here is with the Old Testament and its unity by which it draws the focus to Christ himself. He says in verse 2 that this gospel God promised beforehand through his prophets. You know who the prophets are. Men like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel. But I think it's broader than that. I think it also includes all the other writers of the Old Testament, including men like Moses who wrote the first five books of the Bible, and David, who wrote so many psalms. It includes all of them as well. And so Paul is in a kind of an overall fashion looking at the entirety of the Old Testament and saying this whole section of Scripture speaks to Christ. Marvelous. We could spend weeks on this. In fact, a year ago, we had Todd Friel here who preached for three hours on just this topic how the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. So if you want more information, you need to go back there because we don't have three weeks or three hours even. But here, here's the glory of what Paul is saying is that it's the Old Testament scriptures that tell us about Jesus and all the shadows and all the types and all the festivals and all the Sabbaths, all the sacrifices, all those prophecies in the Old Testament point to Jesus. There's whispers of the gospel in every corner of the Old Testament. 
And all those fuzzy pictures that you see, all those types and all those different strange things that you see in the Old Testament, they're all made clear in Jesus. Because he's the fulfillment of all of those things. And so in a sense, the Old Testament is like a giant arrow that's pointing ahead to Christ. and Saying he's coming. Now you need to understand that because as Paul begins his ministry, there were many accusations against him that he was preaching a new message. There are many within the Jewish community, even within the Pharisees, the group that he was a part of, that were charging him with preaching against Judaism and preaching against the law. This was what he was encountering. This is why he was stoned. This is why he had to run for his life. This is why he had to escape from a city in a bucket over a city wall, because the Jews who heard his message believed he was preaching a new message. Listen to Acts chapter 21, verse 28. It says, the Jews were crying out, men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. You see what they're saying? This man, Paul, is preaching against the law. He's preaching against Judaism. He's preaching against the temple. And they wanted to kill him for that because they believed the message he was preaching was a different message than the Old Testament. They didn't understand. It's the same world Christ came upon. This is why they did kill Christ. Christ came and he preached repentance. And the problem was he didn't fit the mold of the Jewish establishment. He didn't fit in. He he didn't identify with the Pharisees. He didn't follow all their traditions and rituals. In fact, he bucked their system and he confronted them on their system and he called them things like whitewashed tombs and vipers, and serpents, and blind guides. They got him killed. They thought he was preaching a new message. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? How many times does it say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Remember what Christ was doing with that? He's saying, you've heard it said in your rabbinical traditions, in your whole Jewish establishment, in your pharisaical rules and rituals and regulations, this is what you've said, but the gospel says this, but God says this, but the word of God says this. You see, they had erected this whole false system, and Christ comes along and confronts that system and says, you don't understand the true teaching of the scriptures or you've missed it. And so when Jesus shows up preaching a message of repentance, they thought he was preaching an entirely different message and they wanted to kill him for it. Same thing with Paul. Remember what Jesus said, though? Matthew 5, verse 17, remember what he says? Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus didn't come preaching a new message. It's the same gospel truth that was anticipated in the Old Testament. And the same thing happened to Paul. He was accused of of preaching this new message, but he wasn't. He was preaching the same message that had been prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. Then verse 2, as it says, which was promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It's tremendous. Paul is so convinced of this fact I want you to turn over to Romans 3. Let me just do a quick survey with you. He he is so convinced of the authority of the Old Testament as it preaches Christ that all throughout the book of Romans, he's going to quote from the Old Testament. Look at chapter 3 
in verse 4. You see that little indented, italicized verse in Romans 3, verse 4? That's Old Testament Scripture, cited as support for what he's teaching. Go over to chapter 3, verse 10. You see, 10 through 18, you see all those verses indented, italicized? Those are all Old Testament references which support Paul's statement that this is the gospel which was preached in the Old Testament. Go over to chapter 4, verse 3. He speaks about Abraham believing God and it being reckoned to him as righteousness. Down in verse 7, 8, 9, you see all these Old Testament references? Go over to chapter 8. Verse 36, he says the same thing, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Do you see what he's doing? He's going back to the Old Testament, chapter 9, verse 15, chapter 9, verse 25, 26, 29, 33. Do you see what Paul is doing? He is so convinced of how the Old Testament preaches and anticipates Christ that he's going to substantiate his gospel claims through the Old Testament in the book of Romans. Tremendous. And isn't it stated over and over again in the New Testament that Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament? Remember Luke chapter 24, after Christ's resurrection, the day of, in fact, there's, there's two men walking down the road of Emmaus. Remember those two men? Cleopas, and we don't actually know the other guy's name, so we just refer to him as Unknownicus. <laughs> They're walking, talking, trying to figure out what happened. And Jesus shows up and says to Cleopas and Unknownicus, Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into glory? And then beginning with what? With Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Where does Jesus start to preach and teach these men about himself? He goes back to Moses and the prophets. A couple of verses later in Luke 24, it says in verse 32, they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And what are the scriptures? It's the Old Testament that Christ was explaining to them. So they came to a realization of the gospel through the use of the Old Testament. A few verses later. Luke 24, verses 44 and 45 say, He said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Isn't that tremendous? He says, Moses preached about Christ and the prophets preached about Christ and the Psalms preached about Christ. And Jesus comes into the world, he, is, he dies, he's resurrected from the dead, and he just begins to open the scriptures of the Old Testament to demonstrate who he was. This is not a new message. It's the same message, prophesied in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New. Even Peter recognizes this. 1 Peter chapter 1 
Peter writes, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. (laughs) Peter says the prophets, as they wrote the scriptures, were trying to understand the very things that they were writing Now, it doesn't mean that they were totally confused about what they were writing. They understood the essence of what they were writing, but what they didn't know about was who the Messiah would be and when he would come. That's what they wanted to know. And so they're searching, they're trying to comprehend because they know the very things that they're writing speak about Christ. This is tremendous. The Old Testament is filled with gospel allusions and statements about the coming of Jesus. I mean, think about this with me. The Old Testament anticipates who his mother would be, not by name, but that she would be a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14. And the Old Testament actually tells us who his name would be. It would be Emmanuel, Isaiah 7, 14. And the Old Testament tells us of what house he would be born in, the house of David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and where he would be born, Bethlehem and Micah 5. It tells us exactly what kind of death he would experience. Isaiah 53 is very clear. It tells us what kind of death he would experience. His his body would be pierced, but without breaking any bones, Psalm 34 tells us. It tells us that he had to die in Jerusalem, and it tells us that he would be a king who would one day rule over his kingdom with love and grace and justice. Isaiah 9, 6, there will be no end to the increase of his government or his peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, he will reign. Listen, there is no ambiguity in the Old Testament about the coming of Christ. From the very beginning to the very end, it's all about Christ. In fact, you don't get three chapters into the Bible, and he's already mentioned. Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. It's right after the curse. There's a statement of Christ in the proto-euangelion, the first mention of the gospel. You fast forward to the last book of of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4 verse 2 says, You who fear my name, The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Who's the sun of righteousness? It's Christ. So you start the Old Testament with Christ, you end the Old Testament with Christ, and guess what? Everything in between talks about Christ. Moses speaks about him in Deuteronomy 18. Job speaks about him, speaking of his Redeemer who lives. Psalms prophesies about him. Psalm 22, Psalm 110, Psalm 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 69, Psalm 118. Those are all messianic psalms. Proverbs speaks of him. Isaiah, as we just talked about, speaks of him. Jeremiah speaks about him as the the inaugurator of the new covenant. Ezekiel speaks about him also as the inaugurator of the new covenant. Daniel Do you remember? We preached through that book. Do you remember that? Yeah. Daniel chapter 2, the stone that crushed the statue is Christ. The Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7 is Christ. 
Zechariah 12, verse 10 says, they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. This is the scarlet thread through the whole Old Testament. By the way, it's been estimated that there are 332 prophecies about Jesus. I was reading recently about a man by the name of Peter Stoner, who a number of years ago tried to calculate the probability of one man fulfilling these prophecies. And so as a statistician, he applied his knowledge of probability to this and started with eight prophecies and figured that the probability of one man fulfilling all eight prophecies was one in ten to the 17th power. And so then he thought, well, let's try with 48 prophecies. What would the probability be of one man being able to fulfill with exactness, the prophecies, if there were 48 of them, and that's 1 in 10 to the 157th power. I tried to type that in my calculator, and I got E. (laughs) That's just 48. There's 332. Not only that, but what about all the types? What about all the, the shadows? What about all the festivals? What about all the, the images from the Old Testament that, that point to Christ, regardless of the prophecies? He's the better ark, Peter tells us. Better than the ark that saved Noah and his family. He's better bread than the manna that was given in the Old Testament, according to John chapter 6. He's better living water than what they sought for in the Old Testament in John chapter 4. He's the better bronze serpent. He's the better Sabbath. Hebrews tells us he's the better prophet, priest, and king. And he's the better sacrifice for atonement as he is the final and once for all sacrifice for our sins. Listen, friends, there is no doubt about the fact that as Paul says in Romans 1 verse 2, that he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Listen, the gospel you have believed is the gospel that has been preached and anticipated for thousands of years. Granted, not in all of its fullness in the Old Testament, but certainly anticipated for 4,000 years before Christ comes and 2,000 years since. For the last 6,000 years, this message has been preached in the Scriptures. It's not new. It's not recent. It's not some modern thing. No, it's the plan that God has formulated in eternity past and realized in the present. What a joy. What a joy to know that the gospel that we believe is the scarlet thread that has run through the Scriptures for thousands of years. It's the same message that we stand in a long line of believers. What a joy. By the way, can I just put this in here? Don't ignore the Old Testament. Y'all started to squirm a little bit. Don't ignore the Old Testament. You can't ignore it. Because it's the whole part of the Bible. It's not just old. It may be older, but it's not old in that it's antiquated and out of date and no longer relevant for it. No, it is supremely relevant for us because it shows us Christ. And so if you want to know Christ, study the Old Testament. 
Read Isaiah. Do you know that Isaiah has been called the fifth gospel? There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Isaiah. Did you know that? Because it speaks about his life, his birth. It speaks about his name. It speaks about his ministry. It speaks about his death. It speaks about his rulership. You want to know Christ? Read Isaiah. So, friend, don't, don't ignore the Old Testament. Don't think that for some reason, because it's old, that it's no longer in vogue today. Oh, no. Read the Old Testament. Love the Old Testament and see Christ in the Old Testament. There's a second reason you need to be excited about the gospel. Not only is it something that was anticipated in the Old Testament, you also need to understand that it was accomplished by Jesus Christ. It was accomplished through Jesus Christ. And so we come to verse 3 and 4. This gets to the heart of Paul's argument about what he's going to speak on in the rest of this book. And at the center of this, at the heart of this gospel, is the fact that Jesus Christ is the one who has actually accomplished the work of the gospel. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you say, Todd, we know this stuff. We, we got this. We, we know the gospel. We, we're so familiar with the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. We, we know this, and I understand that, but familiarity breeds contempt. We can become so familiar with these truths that they lose their their value, they lose their joy. Paul doesn't want that to happen to us. He doesn't want that to happen to his readers. He, he wants them to be enamored with. He wants them to be engrossed in. He wants them to be dominated by and excited about the gospel. And so he doesn't want there to be any confusion about the person of the gospel. And so in verses 3 and 4, he again affirms the work of Christ. Look what he says, verse 3. Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh who is declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that right there may be one of the greatest descriptions of Christ anywhere in the Scriptures. Born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I want you to notice that in those two verses, Paul does a couple things. The first thing he does in verse 3 is he identifies the humanity of Christ in verse 3 by saying, according to the flesh. And then the second thing he does in verse 4 is he declares the deity of Christ by describing according to the spirit of holiness. See what Paul's doing? He is bringing together both the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ to prove that this man and only this man is the Savior and the Messiah. Because there's no one else who is both God and man. And so what you have here is a description of the incarnation of Christ, the God-man, the coming together of his humanity and his deity. Let's talk about the first one, verse 3. He says, concerning his son, who was born of the seed of David, according to his flesh. According to the flesh. What Peter, Paul is talking about here is the coming of Christ in the form of a man in the incarnation. That God took on human flesh. 
that God dwelt among us, that He was born. He was born. God was born. God in Christ was born. Christ added deity to humanity and became a man. He, he clothed himself with flesh. And friends, as I think about the gospel, this may be the most mysterious and most wonderful part of the gospel, that, that God became a man. I mean, think about that. That is a mystery that none of us here this morning can comprehend, that God condescended to take on the limits and constraints of humanity to dwell among us. That is tremendous. J.I. Packer says this, He says, here are two mysteries for the price of one, the plurality of persons within the unity of God and the union of Godhead and manhood in the person of Jesus. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation, end quote. I agree with that. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. And I would venture to say that this may be the most stunning miracle ever. That God dwelt among us, that He was born, that He became a, a man in the seed of David. This is the glory of the incarnation. Paul wrote about it over in Philippians chapter 2. You don't need to turn there, but you remember what he says in Philippians chapter 2, that Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's a statement about the incarnation, that, that Christ took on the limits and the constraints of humanity, and he emptied himself. You say, how did he empty himself? Listen very carefully. Christ emptied himself by addition, not subtraction. You say, that's weird math. He added humanity to his deity, and when you add humanity to deity, he emptied himself, not of his deity, but of the full expression of his deity. It's known as the kenosis. The emptying of Christ in his incarnation to add humanity to his deity. That's how he emptied himself. He didn't become less God, but he limited the expression of all of his attributes and became like us so that he was born of the seed of David. Now, why is that important? Christ had to come in the seed of David to fulfill prophecy. Christ had to come as a descendant of David because that's what was prophesied in the Old Testament. That 2 Samuel chapter 7 speaks to the fact that David would have a descendant on the throne forever and ever. He had to come in the line of David. Psalm 89 says this, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant, that I will establish your seed forever. This is what was stated in the Old Testament. Isaiah 11, a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from its roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Messiah had to come through David, or there's no Messiah. Well, guess what? Christ came in the line of David. 
When you have some time this week, go back and read the genealogy of Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, and then read the genealogy of Mary in Luke chapter 3, and you will see that they converge on Christ, traced all the way back to David. He's the Messiah. He's the one prophesied. He's the one who came in the line and the lineage of David to establish his throne and take his kingdom. And by the way, he's not on his throne yet. There's coming a day when he returns and he takes his throne, but he's not there yet. So, do you want to know why the good news is such good news? It's because God became a man. It's because God came and was was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. And so as Paul begins his book of Romans, he wants us to be certain that he, Christ, is the Son of God. He's God in human flesh, but it's not enough for him just to be human. He must also possess deity. Look at verse 4 who was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen, if He's not God and He's not man, He can't be our Savior. If He's man and not God, He's not going to be able to raise Himself from the dead or pay from our sins. And if He's God and not man, He can't represent us. So Christ, if He's not God and He's not man, there's no way for Him to be the Messiah. And Paul wants us to be very clear as we begin this book that He is both God and man. There's no question. So verse 4 speaks of Christ who was declared with power to be the Son of God. You see that word declared? It's the word horizo. That sound like the word horizon? Yeah, there's a reason why. Because what does a horizon do? A horizon marks the boundary between sky and earth. It is a defining point. It is a, a line of demarcation that separates sky from land. And as Paul writes this, he says the same thing is true of Christ. Christ is the dividing line between God and men. He is truly the Son of God. He is marked off from the rest of humanity by His deity. And that's what He wants us to understand, that He is declared with power to be the Son of God, that He truly is that. He is truly God in human flesh, not just man, but also God. You say, well, what confirmed that? How do we know for certain that Jesus is God? Look at verse 4. He was declared with power to be the Son of God. Listen, by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness. You want proof that Jesus is God's Son and our Savior? He's alive. He's risen from the dead. The tomb is open. And there is no greater proof, no greater demonstration, and no more conclusive evidence that God came in the form of Jesus Christ because he raised himself from the dead. There is power in the resurrection. We saw some amazing displays of power this past summer. From raging rivers out west to massive waterfalls that erode the ground beneath them to geysers that spurt out of the ground in Yellowstone to Mountains that are pushed up straight out of the ground. There's some power in all of that. But I'll tell you this. 
that power pales in comparison to the power of the gospel and the power of the resurrection. It's tremendous. You want to prove? You want proof that Christ is who he says he is? He's not in the tomb. And you want to know how much power was displayed in the resurrection? Listen, not only did God raise his son from the dead, but Christ raised himself from the dead. Talk about a mystery. His body was dead. His spirit was alive. And by the power of God, Christ raised himself from the dead. Say, how do you know that? Because in John chapter 10, that's what he says. He says, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it down again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down in my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. You see what Jesus is saying? Jesus is, Jesus is saying, I've got the power to lay my life down, and I've got the power to raise my life back up. And so the power of the resurrection is evident, not only in God the Father, but God the Son in raising himself from the dead. And that's why the resurrection is the defining line, the horizon. He horizoed himself. He marked himself out by being raised back to life. Listen, if you're here this morning and you have any questions, about whether Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus is the Son of God and your Savior, this should end the questioning. There's no other man who's died and risen himself back to life, never to die again. Friends, this is why the gospel is so amazing. This is why you should be excited about the gospel. This is why you should be passionate about the gospel because it is about Christ, God's Son, in the flesh, dead for our sins, raised back to life. Listen, friends, we are not saved by some impotent gospel. We're not not saved by some weak gospel that barely sneaks us into the kingdom. No, we are saved by the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, right? Look down in verse 16. That's what he says. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There's power in the gospel, friends. Oh, and by the way, did you notice in verse 4 that the whole Trinity is referenced? Who was declared with power to be the Son of God, the Father, by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ our Lord. First, second, third person of the Trinity. All described in affirmation of who Jesus is. There's no doubt. He's fully God according to the flesh, according to the Spirit, rather. He's fully man according to the flesh and is the only one who could be sent to effect our salvation. Look at the last phrase in verse 4. Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus means Savior. Christ means anointed one. Lord means Master. And he's all of those, our Savior, our anointed one, and the sovereign ruler. Are you excited about the gospel? You should be. Because it's the message that was anticipated in the Old Testament. And it was that reality that was accomplished by Christ himself. 
And there are some more reasons, which we're not going to get to this morning. Friends, this is an amazing reality. The gospel is a marvelous truth of God to us to redeem sinners. And I wonder this morning, are you excited about the gospel? Or is the good news just old news? Listen to what someone says. He says, if there's anything in life that we should be passionate about, it's the gospel. And I don't mean passionate only about sharing it with others, I mean passionate about thinking about it, dwelling on it, rejoicing in it, and allowing it to color the way we look at the world. Only one thing can be of first importance to each of us, and only the gospel ought to be, end quote. All of you here this morning are passionate about something. You're excited about something. Something gets you up in the morning. Something gets you pounding the pulpit. Something gets those juices flowing in your life. You are passionate about something. And I wonder, is it this? Because if it's not this, the things you're excited about today, you're not going to be excited about tomorrow. But this, this is something to be excited about for eternity. Let's be a church. Let's be a body that's passionate about the gospel. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you need to believe on him. You need to receive him. You need to trust him. You need to submit to him because he is your savior. He is your Messiah. And he is the anointed one to whom you will have to do someday. So either bow your knee now willingly or you will be forced to bow the knee to him unwillingly someday. Come to Christ. Receive him. And know the joy and the blessing of knowing him who is the gospel. Father, we need to hear this. We need to hear this because, Lord, our hearts are are prone to wander. We're prone to leave the God we love. Our hearts are so susceptible, Father, of finding our passion and our joy in other things from sports to recreation, money, success, power, prestige, things, materialism. None of these things satisfy. And so let us, as we embark upon this study with Paul, let us see the glory of the God in the face of Christ. Let us see the sufficiency and the beauty of the gospel. And let us be those who are excited about it as much as Paul was. For your honor and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.